Hello again. This is Vox Pop on WAMC. It's Thursday, February 29th. I'm Ray Graff. It's my favorite day of the month because today we talk astronomy. Bob Berman and Valerie Rapson are here to answer your question about Jupiter and Mars and, uh, oh, those there are several other planets. Give us a call, 800-348-2551, 800-348-2551. Uh, space telescope spied a neutron star in the debris of a famous supernova. We'll discuss that today. Astronomers have found tiny new moons around Neptune and Uranus. Uh, oh, heavens, there's a, you know, Saturn has this Death Star-looking moon, and they they think it has just a vast underground ocean. Uh, we'll talk all about that. 800-348-2551. If you have an astronomy question, Valerie Rapson and Bob Berman will be back. Hello again. Welcome back to Vox Pop, WAMC's live afternoon call-in talk show. I'm Ray Graff. Two astronomers in the studio today to answer your questions about space. Uh, Bob, uh, Bob Berman, that is, is one of the best-known, most widely read, most amiable astronomers in the whole world. Bob is the astronomy editor for the Old Farmer's Almanac and a contributing editor at Astronomy Magazine already. Dr. Valerie Rapson is assistant professor of physics and astronomy at SUNY Oneonta. She earned her Ph.D. in astrophysical science and technology at RIT. If you have a question about the heavens, call 800-348-2551, 1-800-348-2551. If you want, you can email voxpop at wamc.org is the email address. Voxpop at WAMC.org, but we'd love to hear your voice. 800-348-2551. Dr. Valerie Rapson, how are you? Oh, I'm doing so good. How are you, Ray? How's Oneonta? Oh, it's going great. Yeah, this is well, my favorite semester. I get to teach my favorite observational astronomy class, so it's just been a blast these okay, last few uh, weeks. Sometimes you don't do that? Yeah, we only teach it once every year, once every two years, depending on how many students need it. But the students in the class now get to learn what real astronomers actually do. How do you take the pictures? How do you process the data? All that fun stuff. I would think that would be the most popular one. It is. It is. But you got to get to that point. You know, uh -huh. There's a lot you have to learn first, and we only have a small number of astronomy minors that take it. But, man, the students are really having a blast right so now. So you could do a lot of night courses then? Are you, night classes? You'll go out and into the observatory? And yeah, yeah. We do some night labs. They take their own photographs and by the end they'll basically have a project that where they are doing their own data analysis fantastic and the planetarium how's that going oh that's going great we start saturday shows this coming saturday uh, shows for families as well as adults yeah it's going to be great now how do people find out about that now this is for the public right yep yep this is for the public how, how do you find out about that? yeah there's our website it has all the information tickets are on eventbrite and that's sunionianta.ed I, I don't know what yeah the, uh, i never remember <laughs> just 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 search for it you'll find it spoken it's easy. like an astrophysicist. <laughs> what URL? I don't know. Bob Berman, how are you? I'm good. Thanks. What What's happening with you, sir? Well, let's see. Uh, usually give me some talks. Uh, oh, you're going to the hairdresser. <laughs> yeah. yeah? Yeah, cleaning up this uh, unruly mustache. Why are you doing that? No, well, no offense, but you have uh, about they, the same amount of uh, hair big, I have. So I talk <laughs> for a, uh, a California astronomy club tomorrow, and I look a little... Uh, hippie-ish. So, uh, yeah. This is a Zoom thing? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Excellent. And how are the tours? 
Doors are good. Leave next week for uh, our annual uh, Northern Lights trip. And it's still a secret location up there in Alaska? Uh, it's just little known. If I, I could mention the names of the nearest towns, but it wouldn't mean anything to anyone. All right. So. What, now, uh, we had a question here about the eclipse. I know you're doing those, you're doing that tour, too, right? Yep, yep. That'll be after. Uh, All yeah. right. Well, let's start with that. Zach and Amherst says, does the time experiencing totality increase as you get closer to the center line of the path? And if so, how much compared to the edges? That's from Zach in Amherst. Yeah, the answer, Zach, is yes. Yes to that. On the edges, uh, if you're on the very edge, you can have as little as just a few seconds of totality. And in the middle of the path around here in the northeast, it'll be a good over three minutes okay. of totality. So you definitely, when you go online and you see the path, you don't want to be on the edge. Where are you going to go see it, Bob? Uh, our group that we're taking this year is, uh, has uh, rented out a... Uh, Winery Ranch. Mm. A winery in, ranch that in, fun. in Texas. So in the clearest part of Texas. So hammered we, astronomers. <laughs> is, can that be? Can that be safe when you're looking at a solar eclipse? Yeah, yeah. We'll find out. All right, man. And so if people want to find out about that, how do they do it? Uh, Bob Berman Tours, and that'll just, just jump you it. to the right okay. place. Yeah, ten yeah. four. Uh, well, Valerie, you, as always, you do my show prep for me, and I, I found a couple things. But I just get so excited about the show me that too. I start looking for stuff, and I'm like, oh, this sounds cool. we got to talk about it. It got to be about 1230. I said, where's Valerie's email with all my show prep? I was about to do <laughs> No, I did some anyway. Uh, you sent one from Space.com. Near miss, NASA satellite, dead Russian spacecraft zoom past each other in orbit. Yeah. This is what I fear is going to be a, a worsening problem for a long time. Yeah, yeah. We are up to now about 16,000 launches of objects in space, you know, seven to 8,000 active satellites. There's just so much stuff and so much space debris up there. And literally just this morning, there was an inactive Russian satellite and an active NASA satellite, neither of which have the onboard thrusters and the capability to move. And they came within like, you know, a few tens of meters of each wow, other or something. That's like close. Ridiculously close. It yeah. was less than 100 feet for sure. Wow. All right. Uh, you, you know, there was a James Bond movie. I think it was You Only Live Twice. Mm. And it was very terrible special effects. But it had this <laughs> spacecraft in orbit. And one of the bad guys, I think it was Blofeld, was, had put this up there to grab satellites. And mm -hmm. it looked like an alligator. It mm -hmm. opened up and then grabbed the satellite. Right. Could you use a similar technology to clean up some of the crap that's up there? You know, I there's we've got to come up with something because we have to fix this. But if you're going to capture things, whether it's, you know, a magnet or some grabbing mechanism, you're going to add weight. You're going to add mass to your spacecraft and it's going to sink. So you're going to have to have the fuel to keep yourself up in space at the right orbit as you continue to gather this mass. So it's not as simple as just floating up there, grabbing material and bringing it back down. It's a lot more complicated to be able to do that process. Interesting, interesting. All right, then uh, a baby star's planet-forming disk has three times more water than all of Earth's ocean. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Now, uh, where is this baby star? Not close, I assume. Well... Astronomically speaking, yes. It's like 450 light years away, so pretty close. It's it's the famous HL Tau system. You know, ah. a lot of a lot of people know that like giant orange disk picture that's been out there yes. that shows, you know, gaps where planets are forming. It's this one, and they recently found a whole bunch of water right in the middle, which is basically where our solar system would be if it was our star. So they're saying that any planets that are forming near the star have the potential to have water, and there's like four times as much water as Earth, so maybe some rocky planets with an ocean. And, and the water is just orbiting this this 
young baby star. Yeah. But wouldn't it sublimate and just be gone? Well, it depends on how close to the star it is. I mean, they're measuring, you know, all the way out to like 15 AU or so. So we're talking about water, you know, past the orbit of Jupiter or um, Jupiter or Saturn in our solar system. So the water is okay. It will stay out there. It's not going to get sublimated by the UV light from the star. All right. Uh, speaking of water, and the number here is 800-348-2551. Bob Berman at Valerie Rapson join us to talk astronomy. Saturn's Death Star-looking moon may have vast underground ocean. That crossed the AP earlier this month, and I thought we knew that already. Well, this... There is so much water. I want to, when I studied this stuff at school, we didn't know of any water anywhere beyond Earth. We thought maybe it's rare. But that didn't really make sense because water is mostly, you know, it's H2O. So that means it's twice as much hydrogen as oxygen in every water molecule. Hydrogen is the most common element in the universe. Oxygen is third. So you'd think that the marriage of those two would be consummated over and over and over again, and there should be... And it turns out it is, okay. that, that water is the most common compound in the universe, and so sure it is. There is, in, in, the, in the satellites of Saturn and Jupiter and around stars, and we're finding it everywhere. You know, Valerie, this, was, this announcement was made by a French-led mm -hmm. team, yeah. but it was based on the Cassini spacecraft. Mm -hmm. So when you're up there, when you're, when you're orbiting this moon, how do you know what's under the ground? Yeah, that's the tricky question. So they're talking about Mimas, which is the, the one that looks like the Death Star. Yeah. It's really fun. Yep. Um, and it appeared to be a solid rock on the surface. Most of the moons, like Enceladus around Saturn, that's the one that we know for sure has the ocean. It will come out. The water will come out in geyser form. But right. this one, there's a solid rocky surface and we don't see it. So they have to watch how the moon orbits Saturn and how it rotates. And if they see any, like sloshing oh, of the moon, like wiggling back and forth, they can realize that maybe the interior is partially liquid. And if the density is right, that'll give you a clue that the liquid is water and not, say, molten rock underneath. Yeah. Okay. Space telescope spies neutron star in the debris of a famous supernova. Uh, Valerie, you sent that one along. You explain mm -hmm. this. Yeah, this was supernova 1987A. I wasn't around for it yet. I wish I was. But yeah, I know. Bob's, Bob's, yeah. you know. I went down there. I, I took a group yeah. to see that. Really? That's it was the only naked eye supernova since 1604 oh, that you could so just look up and see a supernova with just your eyes. So mm -hmm. Amazing. we brought a group of people to near the equator to see it. So this is, this is powerful for me. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The, we would expect there to be, you know, some sort of remnant in the middle, like a neutron star where the star collapses and you basically have the core left over. But we haven't been able to detect it until now. Yeah. James Webb has given us a lot of clues and it's basically found a lot of this ionized radiation or ionized material in the center that can only be formed if there's a glowing neutron star deep within the clouds that are left over. And why is this exciting news? Well, it's, to the likes of you. Well, yeah. I mean, Bob just said it's it's the closest one we've ever seen. So anything that is relatively close to us, we can study better and learn more about the process of stellar death and how it works. And, and a neutron star is the densest weirdest object that you could actually see that's visible. I mean, a black hole mm -hmm. you can't see, but a neutron star, uh, to just give you an idea, its average material has the same density that you'd get if you took a cruise ship and compressed it down to the size of the ball of a ballpoint pen. Huh. <laughs> wow. Still, the ballpoint pen ball still containing every ton of steel 
from that cruise ship. And that's the density of a neutron star, except that typical neutron star, there isn't uh, just a little ball tip of it that's 12 miles uh-huh. twelve miles wide, typically. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, finally here, and we're overdue for a break, but astronomers spot new tiny moons around Neptune and Uranus. What's the deal with this? Yeah, there's these tiny little moons that we're finding really far away from the planets, and we, we find them using telescopes on the ground. If we stare right next to the planets, we will sometimes see really faint dots just ever so slightly moving relative to the background stars. And if we track their orbits, we'll see that they're actually tiny little moons. How tiny? Around. We're talking, you know, five, ten miles. Wow. Like ridiculously Which is crazy because this is 19 times the distance from Earth to the sun. Mm-hmm. 19 times further from the sun than Earth is. And you're seeing something five miles across. That's amazing. That is amazing. All right, mm-hmm. let's take a break here. Bob Berman and Valerie Rapson join us. It's Astronomy. 800-348-2551 is our number. Email is voxpop at wmc.org. Box Pop, 800-348-2551. Ray Graff with you and Bob and Valerie. And let's uh, hit a phone call or two, and then we'll hit the email bag. Let's go to Barbara in Hertzville. Is it Hertzville? Barbara, you're on. Hi, it's, it's Wurtsboro. Oh, Wurtsboro. Fair enough. That's yes. okay. Um, my, my, thanks uh, so much. Um, my, I recently heard that there's a quasar out there that is the brightest thing in the universe and i just if you could explain what a quasar is okay bobby well it stood for quasi stellar or quasi stellar object Mm -hmm. a quasi means sort of stellar because they look like dots and yet early on in the 60s when the first ones were discovered uh, they were they showed spectral lines that were redshifted so amazingly far that they were the farthest objects we could see and to see a little tiny dot and yet still be able to detect it means these were the brightest things ever seen. So they're the farthest, the brightest. They look like stars. So they're quasi or quasi-stellar. So the name was given quasars. But what the heck are they? And we've come to realize that these are early galaxies. These are actually super massive black holes that are capturing material and giving off uh, brilliance. That doesn't happen anymore. I mean, the big puzzle is this none within a billion light years of here. So why are they avoiding our section of the universe and nowhere else? Why? Why are they doing that? Because they're not avoiding our place. They're avoiding our time. If there's none within a billion light years of here, that means there's has been none for the last billion years of time because it takes light that much time to, to reach us from them or more. So it means they're only phenomena, phenomena plural, of the early universe. They, they were things that existed mm-hmm. at one time that don't exist anymore. Well, Valerie, what can we infer about the lifetime of mm-hmm. the universe from that fact? Well, we can kind of get a sense of distance to these objects, and, and we don't really gauge the lifetime necessarily, but we can gauge the the structure of galaxies and how they've evolved and changed over time. Because as Bob said, these are just supermassive black holes that are pulling in material. So the way that galaxies formed and the way these supermassive black holes formed was just a tremendous collapse of material early on. And now the galaxies have evolved and changed to the point where their black holes at the center are not quite as active. 
Barbara, you want to follow up? Uh, that's heavy. Yeah, it <laughs> is heavy. Brain, it is. It's very early in the show. Thank Thanks you. a lot. Appreciate the call. Our pleasure. Thank you. Speaking of heavy, uh, this is from Jay. If the universe is forever expanding, at some point, won't gases be spread out so much that no new stars will be created? And as the other stars die out, the universe as we know it will be flatused out of existence. I don't know what that word is, <laughs> but I'll have to look it up. But I think we get the point. Right. Yeah. I mean, we are kind of expanding forever, we think. And there's theories, you know, called like the big freeze where we're we're just going to expand forever. And eventually, you know, we won't be able to see any other galaxies because they'll be too far away. Yeah. And the material will be so spread out or it will have fallen all into black holes that there really won't be much luminous material left to see. So if the universe survives long enough, that is one of the many possibilities. Every model of the future is a bummer. <laughs> there, there's true. none that doesn't end up in an, either a big crunch where there's an oscillating model where the universe gets bigger and smaller, but smaller ends up everything crushed together in one giant black hole, so everything that's living at that point dies. Or the worst, I think, is the big rip where every the expansion increases its rate, which it's already doing, by the way, mm -hmm. but increases its rate of expansion until it seeps into smaller things. Right now, galaxies hold together. Stars hold together. Stars... And planets hold together. It's only clusters of galaxies that are going farther away from other clusters of galaxies. But in this other model, it seeps into the smaller level until the planets and our bodies and atoms and everything themselves rip apart so that, again, nothing can survive. Huh. So let's just hope that Werner Heisenberg and Erwin Schrodinger and the quantum guys were right when they said, no... It's all the basis of the universe is awareness. There's intelligence behind everything. They weren't religious. They just said that the fundamentals of the universe are not matter and energy. And if so, then there may be intelligence behind everything. And then it, it, the models are wrong. Yeah, They're only models anyway. We, we don't really know what's going on. But whose intelligence? The, 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 the observer? No, 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 no. This, this is sort of in, an innate intelligence of nature, put it that way. You know, a lot of people say that. They say you can't fool Mother Nature. nature. Now, are they, are they implying that there's something that has that intelligence? I don't think so. I think some people just think of nature as having innate intelligence. I mean, you know, if you want to get philosophical here. So some think that the whole universe is innately not stupid. Huh. I don't see a lot of evidence for that here on Earth. <laughs> uh, Valerie, what do you think? I, I think I need to see some evidence, right? Like, I, I nothing is beyond possibility. But show me the picture. Show me the science that backs it. And, and that's what I'll need to What does to your believe. guts tell you? I don't really know. I haven't thought that deeply about it. I mean, there's so much out there that we don't understand. The universe is too big. Like, nothing would surprise me at this point, I don't think, but I need to see it. What does your gut tell you? Uh, my gut tells me it's uh, it's, it's almost happy hour. That's what my <laughs> you know what, though? Okay, the gut. This is very interesting. You're both scientists. Mm -hmm. I am but a broadcaster. Isn't it antithetical to scientists to go with the gut? Well, not to Einstein. Remember, he one of his bases for whether a theory was correct or not was whether it was beautiful, whether it showed intelligence behind nature, whether there was beauty behind it. So he saw it that way. The quantum people saw it that way. 
they saw a structure that, uh, yeah, so you can have a, a personal outlook, a metaphysical or a philosophical outlook that can spill over into the science and, and uh, color your perception of, of the models that you feel intuitively are right or wrong. So when you go to the winery for this solar, uh, for this solar uh, eclipse, got your discussion. you give them a couple of bottles and then you launch into that one, right? All right, let's go back to the phones. We'll go to Queens. Uh, Sam, are you really in Queens? I'm actually driving, uh, but I, I'm from Queens. All right, you're on the air. Go ahead, man. So there's this phenomenon that I've seen in the sky that I've never seen documented like a lattice of hexagons you have to stare and then it becomes clear i see it even in the clearest sky has have any of you ever heard of this thing huh uh the general thing that we start to see as we get older and uh this does not include valerie here who i'm looking at and is not getting any older but the general thing that older observers see in the sky are called floaters but they don't have structure to them. They're 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 dots and and things that you see against a, a flat surface like a white wall or a blue sky. But a geometric pattern like hexagons, no. All right. So I'm going to assume that Sam, you know what floaters are, and so give us your rebuttal to I that. I do. All right. Go ahead, man. Go. Well, well, it's not floaters. I, I know floaters are in your eye, and these are, like he said, a geometric lattice of hexagons. What I believe it is, but it must be, I just don't know if it's documented, is the moisture turning into clouds. Because I've seen the same structure on burning wood in a fire, just like an inch above the slot of wood on the fire, spinning, hexagon spinning. Hmm. Has no one documented that ever? Interesting. Well, okay, so there is this great book, and I forget what the name of it is, but it's it's a well-known reference book, and it's a book of, of unusual atmospheric phenomena, and it, it goes back decades now, and a very scientific book, but it, it goes back in time and, cal- and uh, sort of catalogs all of these things. I recommend you look for that one. I wish I had the author's name, but... Th- You'll find all kinds of strange things that people have seen, sun dogs and everything else in there. And you're probably seeing something along those lines. Sam, thanks a lot for the call. 800-348-2551 is our number. Bob Berman is here. And Valerie Rapson is right next to him. And you are over there, and I'm also over here. Uh, This is from John. No, no, not John. This is from Gracie who's in Massachusetts. Will the moon still be far away in its orbit on April 8th? And if so, what effect does that have on the total solar eclipse? It has the biggest effect because if the moon is really far in its orbit, that is near apogee, it'll be too small to cover the sun. I mean, by the most amazing coincidence in all of nature, the sun is 400 times larger than the moon by diameter, but 400 times further away. So that the only two disks in our sky, which are the only two anythings that have any size, are the same size. So that the moon could just barely cover the sun. It's not too big. Like uh, in some places, you'd have a moon that's too big, and then you wouldn't see the delicate stuff along the edge. Ah. And it's not too small. But it does get too small because the moon's orbit is an ellipse. So if the eclipse happens at one of the farther places, at the lunar apogee, then you get that so-called ring of fire 
or annular eclipse. Mm -hmm. But no, this one is nice and full and the moon is close right. enough. And we just saw the annular eclipse back in October. That's when the moon was very close to apogee and we it happened to line up just right for an eclipse. But now the moon is a little bit closer in its orbit, at least during the eclipse time. So it should, it, well, it should, it will cover up the sun completely. <laughs> Uh, Oliver has written in and uh, wants to correct uh, Valerie's statement. Uh -oh. uh, when two Earth-orbiting satellites join, or when one is eaten by another, their combined weight will be zero plus zero equals zero, because in orbit, they are effectively weightless, even though they have mass. They will not need extra thrust to compensate for combining their masses. Their weightless momentum will continue apace. However, it does take more energy to move a greater combined mass elsewhere. Okay, that's that's fair. I, I use the term weight very casually because I'm used to talking to, you People know, who don't some know. Of, well, some of my students who are, you know, the term mass is, you know, totally foreign to them. But the, the person is actually right. So when you are orbiting the Earth, you are technically in free fall and you are weightless. But as you gather more material together, your mass will grow and that will have an effect on how you orbit. You'll have to move uh, at a different speed to be able to stay in orbit if you are more massive. So good point. No, okay. We deal with that when we teach astronomy classes. And uh, com we com astronomers commonly say to students that the uh, uh, Earth weighs 330,000 times less than the sun. But in truth, we should say our mass is 333 times less than the sun. Mm -hmm. But here's an interesting thing. If two things fall off the table, let's say you're playing chess. Yeah. And you jump off the table. Well, you wouldn't be on the table except jump. for Nibzovich, who is famous for actually jumping on the table and yelling, why must I lose to this idiot? Ah. And then when he, let's say when he jumped off the table, he knocked a chess piece off. And let's pretend that he went, fell to the floor and the chess piece fell to the floor together. Right. As we all know, they would hit the ground together, whereas before Galileo's time, it was thought that a heavier object would hit first. What's really happening? It turns out... Listen to this, okay. that the heavier object does accelerate faster in gravity, uh, that the Earth and Nibisovich, or the, the uh, a person, would pull each other faster than it would pull a chess piece. But this is so cool. But it takes more energy to accelerate a heavier weight. Uh-huh. So although it's pulling, uh, the heavier weight is being pulled faster by the Earth than the lighter thing, but it takes more energy to bring it to an acceleration. Hmm. And they, they balance out. Hmm. So as a result, both huh. both objects fall at the same rate. And they did that experiment uh, the first time they were on the moon, I yeah, think, correct? That great? Yeah, yeah. yeah, the, the yeah. feather and the hammer. Yeah, right. I show it every semester, and the students love it because we do the demo in class, and I'm like, okay, paper, pencil, which one's going to hit the ground first? And I was like, I just told you what should happen, but is it actually going to happen? No, and then we talk about the moon video. It's, it's a lot of fun. How about a bell jar in a vacuum? And then uh, how oh, yeah. something... Can mm -hmm. you do that in class? Uh, I'd have to find one. But, yeah, I've seen the demo done before. It's really cool. The uh, number to call here is 800-348-2551. Dr. Valerie Rapson from SUNY Oneonta and Bob Berman, a world traveler and writer and editor. And uh, you're heading up to Alaska when? Next Wednesday. And where are you going? To the north central part of Alaska. <laughs> because, because it's clear and it's dark. All right. And it'll be March when Earth is sideways to the sun. We get more auroras then. Listen, man, I, my wife and I binge watch this show called Alaskan Killer Bigfoot. You better watch out. That's all I can say. I you want better you, watch out. I want you to, you and your wife to join us one year. We're not going to do it. It would require me leaving the house, which I don't do after office hours. Let's go to Mark in Albany. Mark, you're on. 
Hi, this is uh, Mark in Albany. A quick comment and then my question. Okay. The Mimzovich incident, he was playing Samish, who was not actually an, an idiot, but a grandmaster, and Mimzovich's best customer. He was 15-1 and one against Samish. Not one was the game where he jumped on the table. Okay. But they played a particularly famous game, the immortal Zugzwang game, in which Mimzovich paralyzed all of Samish's pieces with a full board of pieces. Uh, my question is, uh, where, where's the best place to get information about expected cloud cover in the path okay. of the eclipse? I know a few days before, I can look it up on weather.gov, but um, to plan it in advance, is there some place to... Uh, to look for that? Yes, and before I answer that, tell me, is that famous supposed quote by him saying, why must I lose to this idiot? Are you saying that that's false? No, that's true. That so, was the one game he lost to Samish. Uh, okay. So, so Nimzovich did say that. All right, fair enough. Yeah. Okay, okay, so uh, right now you can go online and look at uh, long-term satellite cloud cover studies of, along the path of, of totality mm -hmm. and see where it's more likely to be clear in the long term, which is what you're asking for, I think, uh, and, and where it's less likely. And if you do that, you'll find that the whole Northeast, like where we are, uh, one study said we, we only have a 20% chance of clear skies, but most of them say that we have about a 50% chance. But uh, here, the extra little wrinkle is that during a year of El Nino, which, okay. it, which it is, right you are. it increases clear weather chances by 10%. So that that, oh. that boosts our region up to about a 60% mm -hmm. probability of seeing the eclipse. One last thing. There's a little swath under the Great Lakes, under Lake Erie in Ontario, along Route 90. So that if you go to one of the towns there like Rochester or Oswego, you're in a little band where the long-term averages are better chances for clear weather. Even with the lake effect and everything else. There's something about being south of the lake that somehow produces huh. less cloudiness than the rest of New York State. Well, Valerie, you're from that region. What do you think about that, <laughs> anecdotally? Yeah, I, I recall very many cloudy days over there. But I've, I've got my fingers crossed for all of New York State. I really want it to be clear. All right, Mark, thanks a lot for that. All right, now listen, we have one minute before the break, and I'm specifically asking this question now so you... Bob Berman, you don't go off for like 20 minutes on oh. this, all right? This is from Jude. Question from Bob and Valerie about cosmogenesis. And Jude writes, I wonder what, if anything, they would have to say about the extent to which we are stardust. I do live in Woodstock, after all. How did Joni Mitchell know that 50 years ago? Bob! This is a very scientific thing because the sun and the entire solar system formed from a cloud of hydrogen gas that interacted with debris from a supernova. That's where the stardust comes in. Uh, we wouldn't have the heavy elements in our body like iron and other heavy things if we weren't made up of partially made up of material from an old supernova. So that's where stardust comes from. It's really just a, uh, I think Carl Sagan said it first, but it's really uh, just a very nice poetic way of saying a true thing. Mm -hmm. and Bob's exactly right. That material formed our Earth, ultimately formed the life on Earth, and therefore we are stardust. All right. You know, it's so funny. I thought Joni Mitchell said we are Starbucks, but apparently that is not the case. Let's take a break. We'll be back.
Christian McBride, big band. I think that's under the shade of the cedar tree. Zach, is that correct? Yeah, that's good stuff. One of the great bass players and just a tremendous musician. Number here is 800-348-2551. It's Bob Berman. It's Valerie Rapson. We are having a modicum of fun here uh, on the program, and let's see if we can keep that going when we talk to Merle in Argyle. Hello, Merle. Hey, hi, guys hi. and girls. Um, one real quick additional question. Eye protection. What You gave two different numbers for the eye protection. I'm going to my welder, and I'm going to get a piece. Okay, this is a very good question, Merle. Mm-hmm. And so if you're going to look at that eclipse, this scares the daylights out of me because <laughs> I value what little eyesight I have left. Bob, how do you make sure that you got the right number? Okay, every Eclipse certified uh, Eclipse filter is safe. There's a whole long number that the government has certified. There's been recent testing in the last few years in Australia and America, and they've affirmed that they're safe. Or if you prefer, like we do, welder's goggles, go to your local welding supply store, there's still time, and get shade 12 or 13 or 14, only those three because the ones that welders usually use are too light. Like a shade 10 is dangerous for your eyes. What would you recommend, Bob, the 14? (laughs) Well, when we've let our uh, tour members try out uh, a number of different shades and and tell us what they prefer, they prefer not to have a very, very dark image of the sun. They prefer to see the sun a little bit more clearly. So they've preferred a 12. I think the absolute sweet spot is a 13, mm-hmm. but it's a very uncommon shade. But if you go to a welding supply store and give them a couple of weeks to get mm-hmm. some, they're only about a dollar or two each. Yeah, they, they can get you a whole package of, and they're glass, so they're not like little flimsy plastic things that can scratch. Just make sure you get it right, Merle. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so get a shade 12, 13, or 14. Right, and we should emphasize that you don't want to use the transitional ones because even those you know fractions of a second where yep. you're going from essentially 0 to 12, even if they can go high enough, they can still pose it's, a risk. Yeah. So make sure and, you just get the regular And, and remember, spots. it's safe for total. Uh, for When it's total, you could just look at it. You could even use binoculars and it's safe. Oh, no this is just for the partial... Only for when the bright sun is shining. Only when it's bright because the sun isn't uh, completely blocked. Then you need the filter. If you try to use a filter when the sun is totally blocked, it'll just look pitch black. You won't see a thing. All right. Uh, Merle, you want to follow up, sir? Yes. I had uh, the real question is I asked on the science forum, and they said it was a sun dog, what I would think. I don't agree with their answer. Okay, go ahead. I'm going to give it to. The question is when I'm looking at sunrise through a uh, set of trees that are thin enough that I can see the sun come up and I can stare at the sun, I'm seeing cones and they have rings around and the sun itself. I can see that. On a normal sunrise, you can look at it for a few seconds, and you got to look away. I'm talking about looking through a series of trees that are thin at a horizon on top of a mountain. Hmm. But they're so thin, I can see the sun come up, but I end up seeing a pulsating sun and a ring around the sun with 
uh, it's like looking through a cone mm-hmm. with rings coming okay. out. So now that, I remember the question. Yeah, that sounds like light scatter to me. I thought you were going to go in a different direction, <laughs> yeah. but it just if the light is refracting through the the leaves on the trees or anything like that, yeah. you're you're essentially going to get this shaky image because the light isn't coming directly at you. It's coming at different angles. It's so an you're going to see effect. yeah, some yeah. rings around it as well. All right, Merle, thanks a lot. Go ahead, Bob. No, that's okay. So one one last question for you, Valerie. Sure. On uh, I know that Oneonta is not in the path of totality yeah, on this eclipse. It. But if it was, yeah. is there a huge sort of welder's grade filter you can put on the uh, telescope at the observatory? Well, you can definitely purchase glass filters or like the the special plastic, you know, glasses Bob's were talking, Bob was talking about for the telescope. And that's what we do. We already have them and we can look at the sun any day with this specialized filter material covering the telescope. So they do sell it. You wouldn't be able to get that at a welding store. You have to buy that right. through the telescope and, company. And it probably ain't but, cheap. I'll, yeah, I'm sure no, it's, it's definitely not, but worth it. It's very cool to use and, and to be able to see the sun any day. There's been a huge sun Sunspot recently. We looked at it with those glasses, and we just saw it with the naked eye the other day. Some a black, and I. Was it a black yeah, spot? Basically? Yes, like, it's yeah, huge. Just bigger than the, the planet Earth. Mm-hmm. That's so it's amazing. Awesome. All right, uh, let's go back to our phone lines. It's Bob Berman. It's Valerie Raps, and It's astronomy. 800-348-2551 is the number. Bonnie is in West Sand Lake. Hello, Bonnie. Hi, everyone. Thank you. Uh, Bob, I've already talked to you, and I know you've probably discussed this so much, but um, I am such uh, uh, an incredible fan of a, a total eclipse that I have to ask you further about this. Um, I know I've been reading all the long-term cloud covers, and you said, "Oh, don't go to Texas. Stay home. It's going to be fine here." But I, you know, I was thinking the Adirondacks, and then I just read recently that Saranac is like one of the cloudiest places around, and also that when you get near the mountains, that the high peaks tend to create cloud cover. Mm-hmm. But it also seems to me that you just mentioned Lake Ontario that Buffalo gets plenty of cloud and snow. So I'm just asking, like. Can you be really, like, a little more specific at where not to go in New York State and where is really the best sweet spot to go? Sure, sure. But let me just clarify what you said about Texas. We wouldn't be bringing our group of people to Texas if there wasn't an advantage. They have about a 10% clearness advantage over our area. So that's why mm-hmm. we're going to Texas. But that doesn't so, mean you'll succeed. You still no, could no, fail. No, no, of course not. Of yeah. course not. And I mean, everybody remembers uh, that in 1923, in oh, September, yes. uh, like yesterday. I remember that. in yeah. Southern California, <laughs> a totality was uh, predicted. And everybody, even the oldest people alive, said Southern California in September is always clear. Count on it. Many, mm-hmm. uni- ver- many universities sent eclipse teams. It was overcast over San Diego <laughs> and the entire oh, thing. Yep. Right. Then the next total eclipse was January 24th, 1925, over New York City and Connecticut. In January, we all know mm-hmm. what January is like here. Uh, uh, there's certainly a high likelihood of clouds. Many universities said forget it after being burned California, we're not going to go to the New York area in January. And it was one of those winter days where there wasn't a cloud in the sky. It was all uh, Mm. clear blue. So, Ray, what you're saying is absolutely true. There's no saying for sure. But to Bonnie, who's calling up, Mm -hmm. and we're we're looking at long-term forecasts, and Bonnie already knows that a couple of days before (laughs) the eclipse, to check all the, the best forecasts you can find and head along the eclipse path in the direction towards the clearest weather. We know that. But just for now, we want to get an idea of, in general, what's the 
clearest long-term averages. Yeah. And yes, all of New York State is about 50-50. The Adirondacks are a little bit worse than the rest of the states because the mountainous region is uh, does promote clouds. But that region, yeah. that swath south of the Great Lakes has about a 5 to 7% less cloudiness than the rest of New York State. I didn't know this either until just a few weeks Interesting. ago. So, so Oswego, Rochester, that whole swath, uh, keep that in mind. Anyway. Okay. Bonnie, thanks a lot. 800-348-2551 is our number. It's Bob Berman, Valerie Rapson at Astronomy. This email, <laughs> this email from Jim. Okay, now let's try to keep this one fairly brief. Oh Do we know how much more life is left in the planet Earth, and how old is it? Oh, well, we know how old it is for sure. We know it's four to four to four and a half billion years old. And uh, in, in theory, it will last another three billion years. I know the sun's got another five billion years left, but in about the three billion year mark is when we're really going to start to see the sun's brightness increase enough where we might lose some atmosphere and the earth will survive, but it's not going to look like the earth that we have today. We risk losing the oceans, the atmosphere, all of that. So it depends on what you mean by life. Life, you know, earth as we know it probably has another few billion years okay. left. But the sun will eventually consume it in about five. So all that's right. kind of the real end point of it. Up to this point in all these months, I've never contradicted Valerie because oh. I thought that's a bad thing to do. We're, we're on the same team here. And to say, uh, Valerie, I've read something other than what I'll you've said, I, I think is, is is wrong to do. And I've never done it. But I'm going to do here it for the go. first that's time. Okay. Long preface. I'm getting corrected a lot today. Uh, uh, because I've read Please. some stats, and we could all look this up later, yeah. that in 1.1 billion years, the sun should be 10 percent more luminous than it is now. It's mm -hmm. actually been 10% more luminous every billion years for the last 5 billion years. But the calculations show that that mere 10% should be enough to evaporate all of Earth's oceans, mm -hmm. to bring the global temperatures to a greenhouse effect, and stabilize Earth at about 700 degrees Fahrenheit, Whoa. which I don't have to tell you is no longer... Uh, habitable for okay. life, yeah. so that life on Earth may not exist beyond that point about one billion years okay. in the future. Okay. But, you know, the question really said how much life is in the Earth, Bob, and you've written all That's this uh, hoo-ha about <laughs> the, the sentient planets and the sentient universe. I think that was what the question was about, yeah. right. how much life is there. So Valerie would be right no, in that case. You know what I mean? <laughs> All right. All right, Bob. Let's agree to disagree, Bob. All right, and never argue with Valerie on the show because she she's going to literally kick your butt. I never uh -oh. will again. No? no? All, right. All right. Let's see. This, uh, okay, we're going to go to Rhinebeck right now. No, we're going to go to Glenville first and then Rhinebeck. Hello, Jerry. How are you doing? Oh, very good. Uh, thanks for the, taking my call. I, I think you might have answered it earlier. But, oh. uh, what is, is there a website about the number of uh, the calculation for the glasses to see the eclipse, I'm going to northern New Hampshire that, uh, to see it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was looking on the Internet, but you're saying welding glasses, and I guess that's probably the, the best way yeah. to go. And so. I'll tell you, Jerry, that the, uh, the American Astronomical Society has a really great website with all of the safe places to purchase glasses and all of the certification numbers to look for. So if you search for that, you should be able to find all the details. Okay, great. And one final question, since we're doing statistics, maybe you can give me percentages or statistics. What would be the chance of life, another Earth life, in, you know, in the universe, 
what is the percentage okay. of the Drake it equation? Have to be human life, but all right, here we go. You know, mm-hmm. you know, dinosaurs. Yeah, well, Jerry, we'll let you go, and then we'll we'll expound on that. Bob, you go first. Again, he mentioned the Drake equation, but the Drake equation has so many unknowns. Yep. Like mm-hmm. you're assuming yeah. this, you're assuming yeah. that a certain percentage of uh, that once you get life, it will only exist for a certain amount of time, and then it will cease to exist for any one of a number of reasons. There are so many assumptions that is just that was just our Frank Drake's idea. It was just our. A first vague way, because depending upon what numbers you put into it, the Drake mm-hmm. equation could yield one million uh, li- uh, planets with life in the in the galaxy, or one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty big range. Yeah. No. Uh, so uh, you don't know. It's all models. Yeah. Valor? Yeah. I mean, it really is. How optimistic do you want to be? Right. I'm. I'm openly pro alien, meaning I really think there's got to be life out there because we keep finding more planets that are possibly similar to Earth. So it seems. Almost impossible to me that there can't be something else out there, but until we find it, we're never really going to be able to put a number on it. And is the Fer- the Fermi paradox? Where are they, basically? That's right. Mm-hmm. And 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 he he's the one who who pointed out that life it's so complex to to get a living thing. And at that time, and still today, science thinks it's accidental, that it's just things hit each other. You know, the four fundamental forces, and given the, 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 the 92 natural elements, it'll just happen on its own. And it was Fermi who first said that the chances of life forming on its own are the same as a tornado sweeping through a junkyard and assembling a fully operational um, airliner. Yeah. But, I mean, isn't that the inverse of the Drake equation? He's just making assumptions. No. That's true. But he's saying it is so unlikely to happen accidentally that that uh, he's not surprised that, that we're not finding life because mm-hmm. it just seems to be an astonishingly rare thing. That's not my thought. This is Frank. Uh, that was Fermi's uh, thought. All right. The number here is 800-348-2551. Let's grab a call or two before we wrap it up here in a very spirited edition of the Astronomy Show. Uh, Richard and Rensselaer. Richard. Uh, Good afternoon. I'd like to know if one started at the intersection of Quail and Central Avenue in Albany and went due north, how far would one have to go to get to the totality of the eclipse? Oh, that's a good question. So in miles or time, you'd probably have to drive. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe drive about an hour or two to get there. I'm trying to think exactly where the line is. Picture a path that that takes you through Rochester, Oswego, Watertown, then curves to the east and to the north so that it sweeps over Plattsburgh and also encompasses Burlington. That's his point, though. Uh, Quail yeah. Central is right here if you went right. due north. Well, if you just went straight up, how far would you have to go? Straight up wouldn't be Probably. the closest point of hitting it uh, because you'd go. You'd want to go um, west-northwest. I think okay. the closest point of hitting it would either be Burlington from here or or Plattsburgh. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Fair enough. Does Richard, does that answer your question? Yeah. Can I ask another? I suppose. <laughs> Um, if you are in that totality, won't there be like a semicircle of fire before and after the totality? What do you mean a semicircle of fire? You mean around the? Well, you're talking the about. The, you said a ring of fire. Oh no 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 uh, no no not, not in, in total. No, not in this eclipse. No, because the moon will be large enough to fully cover the sun. So the sun will appear 
for an hour to be a smaller, first a little bite will be taken out of it, then it'll look like a moon, it'll be a crescent, and then a thinner and thinner crescent, that'll go on for an hour. Mm. Then there'll be the total part where all the good stuff happens, the promises, the corona, the mm. animals going crazy, the, the feelings that you get during totality, the strange lighting on the ground, that happens during that three plus minutes of totality, mm -hmm. and then that's followed by another hour where you need eclipse glasses, where again the sun comes back as a first as a thin mm. crescent, then as a thicker crescent. Well, Richard, thanks a lot. When was the last solar eclipse total in North America? It was several years ago now. Yeah, right? in, in uh, 2017. That was great on the internet. I loved it. Yeah. You because you could see okay it's totality here and then it followed it and you could mm -hmm. watch it. Did, do you remember that? Yeah, Valerie? yeah, yeah. Well, they're going to live stream it again, basically all as it moves across the whole country. Well, you know? that's got to be just as good, right, Bob? No, <laughs> that's like saying falling in love on the internet is as good as falling in love in, in real life. Well, have you done that? I've never fallen in love on the internet. So how do you know then? <laughs> Maybe it is good. Uh, you, you Just could going be by right. what he hears, right? All right. Well, <laughs> <laughs> all right. On that bizarre note, we're going to end the show now. Uh, listen, thanks to uh, Bob Berman and Valerie Rapson for being here. Bob, once again, how do people find out about your uh, travels and doings? Oh, Bob Berman Tours, and then it'll take you to the right place. Valerie Rapson, the planetarium is happening soon enough at yes. Oneonta. You have the observatory. Tell us how to find out more about that. Yeah, search SUNY Oneonta, planetarium you'll find all the info. All right. Well, thanks both of you for being here. Support comes from Curtis Lumber, specializing in kitchen design services with cabinetry from Wellborn at Merillat. Virtual designer consultations available, curtislumber.com. And Identity Eyewear, Albany, New York, celebrating 25 years, specializing in distinctive eyewear, European styling, and prescription and non-prescription sunglasses, eye exams by appointment, Identity Eye Identity. Say it slowly, Raymond. Identity Eyewear, Albany.com. All right, that's it. Uh, good astronomy show today. We'll do it again next month. Thanks to Bob and Valerie for being here. Thanks to Zachary Malloy, our engineer. Thank you for calling. Thanks for the great emails as well. Thanks to Susie Chekai, who screened the calls today. Thanks, Susie. Tomorrow it's Food Friday. We'll welcome back Deanna Fox. And if you think about it, March usually comes in like a lion or a lamb. Tomorrow it's coming in like a fox. We'll see you tomorrow at 2.